So our first announcement is we're doing a fundraiser for the month of November for the Children's Advocacy Center. And that's for children and families affected by sexual abuse and things like that. And so the fundraiser is going to be after church in the back. You can buy a $10 gift card. Um, I think Ryan's going to have them. Okay, so look for Ryan uh, in the back after church all of the month of November. Ryan plus Shay, that one. So we're going to be doing that all November after church. Just go get a uh, gift card for 10 bucks. And then donuts and coffee. So this is going to be in two weeks. We'll start a little bit early at 10 o'clock and do announcements. What? Do announcements. Do like a speed dating. I'm like, what am I doing right now? It's kind of like platonic speed dating where you're in these groups and you rapidly answer questions. And the point of it is to meet a lot of people, not to so much like go really deep with a small group of people, but to meet a lot of people. Um, so those are our two announcements. Um, there's also another announcement, which is, which is kind of a shift in tone, and it's sad. And uh, Don Friedrich's dad passed away this morning, and so they've been kind of expecting that for a while. Um, but that happened, and so I'm going to pray for him, and then I'm going to pray for our offering basket. And, uh, and then I'll pass this, and then whoever's next will come up. Um, God, please be near to the Friedrichs and comfort them. And uh, make it clear to us and the other people around them how we can be there for them and support them and love them as they go through this. Um, yeah, and thank you for this opportunity to give financially. We pray that the way that we give will be honoring to you and something that pleases you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Brad. I'm one of the ministers here. Uh, and you're welcome. Judging based on Grant's hair this morning, I'm guessing that people slept through church, uh, got a little too much sleep uh, this morning, uh, so that's why we're missing so many folks, and so many of you were late this morning, making us have to start 15 minutes after church instead of 10, which is what we normally do, but oh well, what happens, you know? I won't judge you or hold it against you. Uh, <laughs> great. So we're going to continue on in a series that we've been doing now for a while, a challenging series, one that I think is probably not connected really well uh, with you. But let me just remind you, we are a small church. And at the beginning of the semester, when we say, hey, is there anything that you guys want to talk about? And nobody comes up and says anything, then we have free reign to do whatever we want, okay? And so if you've struggled through this sermon series, maybe over the break for January, You'll have some better ideas on what exactly you want to cover. No, but seriously, this is a really important topic. It covers a lot of theology. It's hard to understand at times. Uh, but for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about something that I think makes a lot of sense to many of you and talking about identity and mental health, okay, starting with me today. And then Leslie will preach two sermons because you guys need a break from me. And um, so, yeah, so we're going to be talking about uh, mental health. But if you're new today or you haven't been paying attention, we've been talking about Christian identity. We've been drawing from what's called the in Christ passages in the New Testament, which are where Paul says we are this or that in Christ. There's lots of them. In fact, it's probably the most liked uh, phrase that he uses. And so all of those phrases communicate to us some form uh, or another of our identity in Christ, something that many of us need to kind of rethink. We've also been going back to the Psalms, which is a great source for kind of meditation and reflecting on uh, our identity because David cries out to God a lot talking a lot about his identity before God, okay? 
So uh, the goal at the end of each sermon is to try to find your own psalm or own in Christ passage. Probably like three of you have done that. So um, I'm not for sure at what point that's going to stick. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe never. Uh, but just to you know, let you know, that's kind of the point. The assignment there is to find your own in Christ passage or psalm that makes sense of the, um, the topic that we've covered. Three weeks ago, we talked about you're not just a brain and a body. Okay? Two weeks ago, we talked about you aren't what you make. And today we're going to be talking about you aren't alone, or we aren't alone, okay? Now, I don't mean to talk about aliens today, although I would love to, Um, but we are going to talk about a topic that is not that sensitive to me because I feel like I've not experienced it. So I'm going to talk a little bit among you at the beginning, let you kind of share so as to kind of get to the bottom of this. And the topic is loneliness, okay? How many of you feel like you felt lonely for an extended period of time uh, more than maybe a handful of times in your life. Okay, Wow. okay, great. So let me ask this, how does loneliness feel to you? <laughs> bad, feels bad, I hate it. Okay. Say it again. Oh, I thought I heard someone. Depressing? Now, depressing is something I can relate to. Many of you know I've shared my battle with depression, the fact that three years ago I started taking medication, which has really leveled me out. Depression, I understand, but the whole idea of loneliness to me feels, uh, or from what I understand people saying, feels a little bit different. But okay, maybe those go together. What causes loneliness? Lack of people. So then you shouldn't be lonely, right? Because you have lots of people around you right now. Is that true? Someone said no. (laughs) I'm fine. Okay, well, good. Glad you're good, Tyrus. That's important. Oh, hold on. Right here and then Catherine. Go ahead. Say it again. Lack of meaningful relationship, sure. Feeling outside, left out, those kinds of things. Not like you don't belong, yeah. Mental isolation, okay, you're kind of wrapped up in your brain all the time. Yeah, Michelle. Okay, unseen, misunderstood. Wow, that's pretty good responses, man. Yeah, okay, got it. Okay, not feeling like people understand you, uh, you can relate to them. So there's this movie that uh, took place, I don't know, remember when, maybe it was late 90s, maybe it was 2000s, called Patch Adams. Some of you have seen it, some of you don't. I love cheesy Robin Williams movies, okay? And the irony is not lost on me that he would eventually commit suicide, and this movie talked a lot about suicide. Uh, but it actually follows a true character, a guy named Patch Adams, who created a hospital where people were supposed to have fun at the hospital. And if you've been to a hospital recently, you, you probably know that's not the most common thing that you would think and associate with the hospital. Anyway... This guy's got a really interesting story. The movie starts off with him on a bus uh, heading to a um, a cognitive health facility and just sort of reflecting on how sad he was and lonely and depressed. And so fast forward a few scenes, all of a sudden he starts to build relationships with the other people in this facility and he gets this nickname called Patch because people say literally that they uh, patch, he patches some of their loneliness and some of their wounds. Uh, and this is in contrast with many of the doctors who don't seem to be able to get through to the patients, their importance, their value, that kind of thing. In this facility, he decides he's going to go become a doctor, and midlife goes and actually becomes a doctor, and the movie's really, really uh, good and cheery, and honestly, the worst thing that happens in the movie doesn't even happen in real life, so you can go watch the movie cry and then feel good that the bad thing doesn't actually happen, and I won't spoil it for you just in case you watch it. But this movie's always stuck out to me as a... Um, a lesson 
on what, at least for Patch Adams, caused the loneliness in his life. And he would later go on to say that it was lack of meaningful relationships and lack of prioritizing people around him. He was stuck up inside his head, like many of you guys talked about, and he found that as he served, assisted, cared about other people, some of his loneliness started to chip away. Now, I'm not advocating that if you're sad and depressed, you have to go help people, and that's going to fix things, <laughs> particularly if your expectation is going to be some kind of immediate fix. But I do think that the scripture talks about loneliness and depression and mental health issues as often being a lack of meaningful relationships with each other. All right? So the thing that I want to talk about this morning is we aren't alone, individualism and identity. And um, we're going to be out of Romans 12, 3 through 8. I'm going to have someone read it really loud and proud. And then I'm going to give you a couple ideas, and then we'll finish up. My title for this is so painfully stupid uh, that I have to mention it. So uh, Romans 12, 3 through 8, the many form one. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's a good part. I should write that down. The one forms a ninny. I thought a ninny meant sissy, but as I was looking at words that were, uh, you know, rhyme with uh, many, ninny apparently means fool. So, you know, I don't know. Ninny sounds like sissy, but apparently it uh, means fool. So uh, the many forms one, the one forms a ninny or a fool, uh, however you want to say that. 12, three through eight, who's got it? Loud and proud and with gusto, with uh, inflection. Yeah, that, that sounds right. Go ahead. You want to stand maybe even? Why not? Hey, who knows? Let's do it. Oh, no, no, just three through 10, I think. Yeah, yeah, 10. I think I said eight, but I like, I like eight to 10. No, no, 10, 10, 10. Not 12, not eight, 10 in the middle. Oh, goodness. Okay, great. So you see there the in Christ passage is, right, that we are a part of a body. Now, it's almost cult-like what Romans uh, uh, says to us here, Paul says in Romans, that we belong to each other. This is a very, very strange idea, uh, you know, particularly in a society that values individualism and, and values sort of individual contribution. And so we're going to have to work through that. But I want to suggest two things to you, okay? And then I'm going to give us a step-by-step -step process, uh, process, process and, uh, and how to avoid this kind of loneliness, at least the kind of loneliness that we can control in Scripture. Number one, I believe what causes a lot of our loneliness is our lack of hearing from and talking to God. Okay? What causes a lot of our loneliness is our lack of hearing from and talking to God. Okay, that's number one. The second one is our focus on, uh, or what causes our loneliness is our focus on our surface level differences or commonalities, okay, meaning things we have in common with each other or the thing that we're different, those surface level things, without discovering compatibility. If we believe that the Spirit puts us together, even a church this small, okay, because, you know, the churches that they were talking about back then were house churches. So if house churches could form one body, then a church this big that's, what, 10 times the size of a house church certainly, I don't know, provides like a superhuman body. And I don't know what that means for mega churches, but um, just forget their analogy, that was terrible. Um, but the Spirit puts us together as he sees fit, if we believe that. And therefore, as one body, okay, God is doing something in our community, in our church, in our small groups, in our house churches, whatever, as he sees fit. This isn't just about us picking friends based on who we agree with, whose life stage we're in, uh, who, you know, um, I don't know, maybe we're really intrigued by because they're interesting and different but learning how to discover the very compatibilities that draw us together in these deep and meaningful relationships. Listen, I don't know 
And I think this is an age-old idea, but I think it's one that largely people have uh, not really fought much anymore. Because you can't be in Christ without community. It's really just not possible. It's not like a God is leaving you out kind of thing. It's like a there's no way that God can work in his spirit in you and in the most significant ways unless you're in deep, meaningful relationships with people around you. And if you've read Romans here, you understand that. He's simply saying you belong to each other. One of you is this part. One of you is the other. But you don't form a whole, a complete, without all the other people around you. And if you hang out with feet all the time, well, not only are you going to smell, but, um, you know, it's just not going to work, right? And that's the whole idea of this body being together. So let me repeat those two for you. I believe what causes a lot of our loneliness is our lack of hearing from and talking to God and our, our focus on these surface level differences or commonalities in relationship with each other without discovering the actual compatibilities that are often there because the Spirit's led us. In Christ, we form one body. So step one in terms of dealing with this uh, loneliness that we experience, all right? Number one, step one, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Okay? This is where the passage starts. We're going to start with where the passage starts and end with where the passage ends. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to. Now, this is a weird command because probably most of us think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Some of you would argue you think of yourselves as lower than you ought to, which this passage covers too, by the way, because what's the second line? Think about yourself in sober judgment. Too many Christians throughout the ages, even some of the Christians that I'm going to read from here in a moment, had this really strange idea of selfhood and individuality, one that came out of uh, a mostly Eastern culture that brought together people in this sort of like one organism and didn't allow them to sort of think of themselves as individuals. Well, they took that into Christianity and it became like, well, I just need to sort of disappear and let God reign in me as you're going to see in a moment. This passage is not saying that you ought to think nothing of yourself, but not more highly than you ought to. You ought to use sober judgment in who you are. In the passage, it says, in accordance with the faith God gave you. I'm not going to try to talk about that because in all honesty, I have no idea what it means. It could mean that somehow God has given some larger amounts of faith to others. It could mean that at a certain time of your life, you have more or less faith in terms of a season you're in, in terms of your growing, whatever, don't know. But we're going to say that the point here is that you ought to have sober judgment about who you are. Now, where I think lack of judgment comes in play with most of us is how knowledgeable we are about life in general versus listening to and hearing from God around us, okay? So I want to read you three passages uh, from this, uh, this book that I've been uh, kind of reading through, different, uh, introduce you to different kind of thinkers throughout the ages. The first one's Martin Luther. He probably doesn't need much of an introduction. Some of you know, uh, you know, he was one of the first people that really moved the Reformation to high gear. What's ironic about John Luther is, or Martin Luther, is that a lot of people have looked back at him as being sort of the ideal Western man, the modern man, the individual, the, you know, um, the one man that stood up against the Catholic Church and decided he's going to go and, and create Protestantism, the protest of uh, Catholicism. What's weird is that Martin, Martin Luther at times in his life had a very unhealthy view of himself. Uh, often thought of himself as being nothing and struggled with this, his identity before God. And so the idea that he would be this guy that sort of, you know, this rugged individualism, I'm good on my own, I'm a loner, uh, is kind of a strange idea. Uh, so I'm going to read you something that he says because I think it's very important. If it's hard to understand, I can always uh, repost the quote. But here you go. 
Is he then good, talking about God, and fair if he confounds and reproves and tramples upon all that is ours and offers and establishes only his own? Talking about in the identity of a Christian, taking away what you thought was yours and replacing that with what is actually God's. This is the whole idea of if you lose your life, you'll gain it, gain the whole world, you know, you lose your life, that kind of thing. He is the very best indeed because, as I have said, in this he proves himself to be the true God who wants to give his gifts to us and to be our God, to impart benefits to us, to want us for himself, and to not take what is ours, not to have us as his benefactors and gods, and not to have need of us. To impart benefits to another is divine, but he cannot be our God and give his goods to us unless he first teaches us that he does not want our things and that our things are nothing before him, as Isaiah 1.11 tells us so that us, thus humbled, we might become capable and desirous of what is his. If he would take anything of ours and not utterly repudiate it, then he would not be the true God, God alone, because we could contend with him in benefits. All he's saying here, guys, is when he thinks about talking to God, he comes to God recognizing that he's nothing in himself. He's got nothing to offer God. He's got nothing to contribute to the conversation. He's not going to teach God anything. His thoughts aren't impressive to God. He simply comes before God, hearing and talking if necessary. And this is how he has grown into an, a true understanding of his self before God. Pretty powerful idea. I like that a lot. Next one I want to read you is from, uh, well, there's two different quotes, two different ladies here. One was the most famous and brilliant academic of her time in the 17th century. And she would go on to be a part of the pietist movement, which was at the time probably a pretty decent one, but was sort of like seen as a cult. This would be the same movement later on that, you know, produced Methodism uh, and uh, even, you know, created the whole uh, um, decade-long no-alcohol, you know, prohibition era, which wasn't so great. Um, but anyway, and uh, as she uh, you know, rose to fame in her academic uh, career, as soon as she started to have these ideas of what she called the oblation of self, which meant that she's going to take herself, put it aside, and only focus on God, which I have a little trouble with. We'll talk about that in a moment. She began to be shunned by all the people around her, basically lost her career and went off into hiding in this sort of pietist sect here. But I want you to read this because I think it's a pretty powerful uh, example of what we're talking about. All right. So loving de devotion and direct illumination from the Holy Spirit, therefore, must be complemented by a radical overthrow, even destruction of the whole self. This is what Ben Sherman by the way, her name is Maria Van Sherman, uh, calls self-denial. And this she regards as the final cure for a mind and a heart that are turned in upon themselves and, and, and hence unable to receive the fullness of God's intimacy. It is important to note that self-denial for her meant a surrender of the will to God along with all of one's loves and possessions rather than concrete practices of asceticism per se, meaning harsh treatment of the body, she does not specify particular activities, but rather attitudes we should have before God. This entailed a willingness to let go of personal ambition and desires, for example, and focus on loving, uh, focusing of love upon God instead of promotion of self or any created thing. Furthermore, it made way for a genuine conversation and inundation of life. The next lady I want to read, and this quote's pretty short, is a, a lady named Madame, I cannot say her name, Madame Jean Guillon. Sure. Uh, she was, uh, again, uh, a spiritual advisor to the king. Um, after she brought up her own idea of self-sacrifice and what it meant to really be empty before God, she not only was jailed, but then later exiled 
to live by herself. On, uh, it wasn't even an island. It was just house arrest in sort of a rural area. And so one of the reasons I want to read you these quotes is because every time someone comes up with this idea of self-denial, particularly in Western culture, people get really pissed and mad because they want something a little bit lighter than that. The idea of completely emptying ourselves before God doesn't sound right. Wait, if we empty ourselves, doesn't that mean we don't have anything there? Doesn't that mean that's a harsh treatment of our mind? These are all excellent questions, but from the top down, people really got upset at this idea of not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. So here's her quote. As Gruen begins to explain the process by which the self is annihilated, she writes that the first thing that needs to die is the perception of oneself. One ceases to discern or recognize anything but God. Annihilation of the self is first and foremost an annihilation of one's self-awareness. From the start is an action of the self that is being destroyed, regardless of how one defines the self's essence. The soul moves beyond its fixation with itself and loses itself in the abyss of God, no longer aware of anything but God alone. Significantly, it is not the self that has been lost, but the feeling, knowledge, and discernment of itself is lost. Let me just say one thing. I think a lot of these thoughts were great in their direction, but not the most great in their personal application. I was, as I was reading these quotes, reminded of what John says in 1 John 4.20, if you say you love God but hate your brother, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. So this idea of just simply being in this blissful state with God, emptying myself, not having any self, is itself not only not true often, but can be another form of individual identity in which we compare ourselves to other people. I'm closer to God. My prayer is better than yours. You know, God and I are really tight. You know, you're always, every decision you make seems like God told you what to do. Like you've got God right there telling you, you know, the most mundane details of your life. So there's certainly a balance there. And I want to talk about that in this, uh, the second part. But let me ask you a thoughtful kind of reflection question for you to answer on your own. Okay. When your own thoughts or are your own thoughts and own achievements, more important than hearing from God. Because if they are, you will alienate yourself from God. Okay? And the same for others. Are your own thoughts and own achievements more important than you, more important to you than hearing from God? Because if so, you will alienate yourself from him and from others. I've shared this story before, but in my 12th grade year, after only being a Christian for, I think, a year, I had everything figured out. I was going to a great college. I was dating a college cheerleader, which is pretty sweet, right? I mean... You know how many times I showed that picture around? Nobody believed it. They were like, that's a stock photo. Um, anyway, my life was going great, but I was deeply depressed, more depressed than I have ever been in my life even up to this point. And I remember sitting down uh, with Ronnie, and you know, I can only remember two things. The psalm that he shared, uh, which in essence basically said, are you downtrodden? Are you low? Join with me in sharing the good news of Christ with others. And it wasn't that exact phrase because you know, good news wasn't quite out yet. But Ronnie just basically said, you know what, if I thought about myself as much as you think about yourself, I'd be just as depressed. Um, and this was important to me because it wasn't just someone coming and kind of slapping me in the face. I mean, it was a slap in the face. I knew him. He struggled with depression himself. But it was a real turning point in my life, recognizing just how much time I spent thinking about my own deal and really never connecting with people, including God, at any kind of deeper level. So I give you that as an important part of this. When my own thoughts, my own achievements, whether that's lack of achievement or achievement, are more important than hearing from God, I'm going to alienate myself from him and from others and feel lonely. So step one, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. 
uh, the core here is that you have a sober judgment of yourself. How do you get a sober judgment of yourself? You listen to what God tells about you, says about you. You listen to what other people say about you, who you trust. I had a conversation with someone the other day who was just really, really not confident about the path that she had chosen. But every time up to that point, she had been telling me about how her reviews were glowing, said that she was one of the most important people on the team. A lot of us would try to kind of say, oh, you're okay, it's no big deal. And I said, you know, at some point, you've got to stop listening to the lies that your own brain is telling you and start caring enough about other people's opinions around you to trust that they know what they're talking about when they tell you you're a vital part of the team. That was a hard conversation. I'm pretty sure she told me I was insensitive. Um, but, uh, you know, I felt like it's what needed to be said. Whether I said it completely right, I don't know. Uh, I don't remember. I don't think I was yelling it. So, step one, not thinking about yourself more highly than you ought. Now, step two, and I'm going to spend more time on this one. Do sincerely honor one another above yourself. So this passage of being part of a body and all these different things about your gift of teaching and diligence and all this stuff has everything to do with sandwich between these two ideas. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to and honor one another above yourselves. Now, I want to talk a lot about this one because this one has some tricky implications. Number one, okay, I think there's at least two pretty good interpretations of what he's saying by honor one another above yourself. Okay, number one, it could just mean honor the group above yourself, one another. The one another passages don't usually mean individual people only. They mean the community of people around you. This idea that we should honor every single one person above ourselves, particularly if we translate to treating everyone around us better than we treat ourselves, is an unhealthy idea, and it's not even scriptural. Okay, Jesus tells us to treat people as we would want to be treated and as how he treated people. This idea of Christian asceticism where we're just going to go around, not take care of ourselves, not treat ourselves right, we're just going to treat everyone better uh, than us. Number one, it's probably impossible. And number two, uh, it's not a really scriptural idea, okay? It's an odd idea. Or he could just be referring to the fact that honor is better when it's coming from someone else. We know this, right? We've lived through a presidency of the last three years, learning this lesson over and over again. It's usually better when someone else honors you than when you honor yourself. Honoring yourself usually doesn't go over real well, even though, again, that doesn't stop our president from honoring himself at every opportunity and privilege, you know, that he has the ability to. I don't know if you've seen that video from this last week of um, Obama spliced in with Trump, with the bag, uh, I can never say his name, the bin Laden versus al-Baghdad, Baghdadi. That is one of the funniest videos you've ever seen, right? And without getting too much more into politics, just looking at the idea of honor, uh, it's pretty clear to us that when someone else honors you, it ends up being better than when you honor yourself. Okay? So I don't know what this passage is saying exactly, but I do think we've got to dig into it a little bit and try to make some sense. Okay? When I think through this passage and try to kind of bring it into today's language, number one, it's really hard because we don't use the word honor much anymore. Okay? We had this conversation this morning. We use the word respect maybe, but respect is more of a choice. Honor is usually not something you choose to do. Think back to the society these folks lived in. The norms were pretty fixed. Honor was kind of a dictated path for you. You honor this person above you. You host this person. This is what you're supposed to do. Honor was a code and it was fixed. Okay? Social norms. And so by Paul... Telling uh, the Christians in Rome, who particularly had a very, very 
um, diverse class of people uh, with various honor titles and things like that is ultimately telling them to take these norms and turn them upside down on their head. I gave the example this morning in our um, Tula meeting of when Jesus would go to someone's home. Number one, this was a huge honor to pay someone to go to their home. Even 100 years ago, 70 years ago, people were really caring about who comes to my home, whose home do I get to go into, that kind of thing. And you would generally invite people into your home, and they would host them. But Jesus had this little funny trick, which when he got invited to a home, he would usually turn around and host them instead. He'd be the first to pray, to break bread. It was a double honor for them to be hosted at their own home. Think about how much you know, uh, more likely if you're going to host someone, you want them in your own home, your own environment, that kind of thing. Jesus paid great honor to the people he spent time with by hosting them in their own homes. So if I think about this and try to make sense of this today, what we're doing is taking social norms that communicate respect and honor, if that word even makes sense, and reversing them, turning up them upside down on their head. That's what it means to honor one another above ourselves. Okay? So many of our relationships tend to be transactional. That's the whole idea of respect, honor, code, is that I expect something from you if I give this thing. And if I'm in this position, I expect something from you. When you turn those relationships around and they become not just transactional, but actually meaningful relationships where norms are being broken, it has a very, very powerful impact on people. A super, super powerful impact on people. To use a really silly and strange example, but let me back up a little bit. Let me say this. In terms of today and how I think this message sort of applies to us, the most important piece of this is us learning how to invest in the people around us. Truly paying honor to someone is not just saying something to them or doing something in a moment. I think one of the things that pays honor the most for people is investing in their life purposefully. Okay? And as a church, that's one of our biggest priorities is that we've got people in our church who are invested. I just started with the stock market this last year. I'm terrible at investing. Okay? I'm really just trying to make quick money, and it doesn't work until I don't try to make quick money, and then I do. Okay? And one of the things I've learned, number one in investments, is it takes a long time. And if you just expect something quick, you're going to be very, very frustrated. And I get more joy out of losing money when I'm invested in stuff that I believe in than when I'm invested in stuff that people told me I should probably invest in. So I lost about $1,000 uh, almost in about, I think it was about a month and a half last year because I had uh, contributed stock to NVIDIA right at the same time cryptocurrency died. Didn't even expect that or think about it. Now I'm invested in Fresh Pet, which sends really healthy fresh foods for pets. I am not a recipient of this fresh food, okay? That sounds expensive, but it's at least something I like and I made, just yesterday, almost 12%, okay? The stock just shot up out of nowhere, okay? That's, I'm just telling you, I'm now pretty rich. Uh, that 12% was like at least $500. So I have a lot of money. No, I'm not taking anyone out to lunch, okay? But the example, I think, uh, still stands true, that when we invest in something, and invest in people in particularly, we pay them honor. Because what's, if anything, it reverses the social norms, guys. Most people only invest in people who are like them, have something to give to them, or uh, that they have a temporary connection with. In Christ, we purposely invest in people, even if there's nothing that makes sense of the relationship, 
in terms of our commonalities or age similarities because we believe that the Spirit is putting people around us to invest in and we end up turning the honor code up on its head. Okay? That's what investment does in the lives of people around us. And it's that very same thing often that will challenge the loneliness that we feel in our lives when we really feel connected to people. Because God created us to be connected and loneliness sometimes is just his way of reminding us, hey, guess what? You're not doing what you were intended to do. You've got another function here and it's not actually working. So I leave you with this question, guys. How many of you are invested purposefully with people in your various communities? The church community, the work community, uh, whatever civil organization, civic organizations you're in, your neighborhood. This is not a, let's go out tomorrow and invest in 100 people. That's not what Jesus did because you can't possibly do that when your nets are so wide. But Jesus invested in people and he stuck with them. And if we're going to deal with this sort of common malaise of loneliness, we've got to learn how to really purposely invest in people. So have you thought about that lately? Are you invested in people in this church, in your workplace, invested for the long haul, for the long run, not just for the quick return, not for the quick expectation to be met, but really, truly invested? I'm going to do what I normally do at the end of these sermons and take a few questions from you. And I have to remember to repeat these questions so that they uh, get on the, uh, the, the tape deal, whatever. All right, got any questions? Thoughts about this one? Or just thoughts? I mean, it could be encouragements, challenges to church. Yeah, Catherine, top fan. So this is an interesting question. The question is simply that how do we avoid staying in Christian ghettos where all of our friends are Christians? And, uh, and you know, how do we actually move into a place where we have investments outside of the faith? Okay, well, number one, let me just say this. The scripture presents the Christian community as very much a training ground for relationships outside. One of the real difficult things that people, when they're new Christians, I remember studying with a girl, um, and she was new, and, and she was just kind of becoming a Christian. She was so offended by these passages that talked about treating Christians better than other Christians, or at least that's what she kind of assumed they were meaning. P times when Paul was saying, especially those in the household of God, okay, as if we should treat Christians, you know, better. Well, number one, that's not how the scripture portrays this, okay? We should be much more challenging and hard on the people around us that we've invested in in hopes that they're going to change. We had those meaningful relationships. It's kind of like family in that sense, okay? So I think actually for most of us, we're not even very invested in the people around us in our own church community. And so we've got to start there because it really is a training ground, right? Uh, it's a training ground for... Uh, all, I have a really crass image in my mind. I probably shouldn't share it. No? What do you think? No? Okay, it's for me? All right. Feels right. It feels right. But uh, it feel, I'm just going to not do it. So it's a training ground. And you're able to treat other people in a, a way that develops your skills and your abilities for actually doing that outside. So that's number one. Okay. Number two is that's a problem we all have, and it's an excellent question. How much to invest in those out? Let me just say a couple things. One, most of us don't invest with people uh, outside the church because the returns are less than the returns that we get from people in the church. So it's not that we've actually asked this question. It's that it's a simple transactional question of, I feel better with the people I know and have similar values with, and when they make good decisions, I feel related to those good decisions. People outside don't pay near the dividends uh, uh, people inside the church. And unfortunately, that's a terrible reason 
for not investing in people outside your church community, right? Because that's not how, that's, that's not the norm. So we're not meeting with people just to, remember what Jesus says, that, you know, the Pharisees will travel over land and sea just to make a convert that's twice the son of hell they are. <laughs> they were pinpointing people who they know they could get a return on. And here's Jesus going and finding the lost sheep when who knows, you know, if that one's going to go right back into being lost again. Uh, and that flips the social norms there. So that's just a hard question. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that we're attempting to do in our outreach team, we had this conversation this morning, is get people up here every couple of weeks that are giving tips on how to really minister and mentor um, and, and, you know, people in and around their environments. You know, let's get rid of the word probably evangelism and outreach and just talk about ministry at church, ministry in the workplace, ministry at home. It's all ministry. It just happens to be in a different environment, right? And some of these languages that we use probably aren't so good. I was actually going to share a story this morning uh, from my own ministry uh, in my social life. But then I realized if I share my own story, I'm doing the exact same thing I told you not to, is paying honor to yourself. So uh, I'm just not going to share that story. Uh, if I, can, I mean, I can't possibly preach on that and then go ahead and share about the story. Anyway, yes, Justin, another top fan. Yeah. Yeah, so the question here is about half our church are college students in a college ministry that provides them with ample opportunities to invest in people to have meaningful uh, relationships. How does that change in adulthood? Number one, just because you're a part of Focus doesn't mean you're investing in meaningful relationships. And um, one of the things that's important to know is that some of you, you have a CORFA partner, a COFA, whatever. You have someone in your core that you meet with when you're young. It's very easy to treat people in that same transactional way. I'm meeting with you. I'm leading core with you. I'm doing things that are task-oriented and activity-oriented and that bring me a return, whether that's because I feel good about leading the group that week, uh, whether I feel good about you know, having this conversation with that person, and that's not really investing in people. That's not really changing the social norm. When you are a CORFA looking for, out for the people in your core, you're doing basically what you're, you've agreed to do. Think about the parable with Jesus saying, you know, when the uh, person comes in from the day and cooks dinner and the master has his dinner, does the cook, you know, say, oh, you know, are you ready to appreciate my work? No, he says, you're the cook. That's what you do. What we're talking about with honoring people is when you turn those roles upside down, when you begin to really invest uh, people. And so I think a lot of times uh, it's easy when you're a core for or when you're in focus ministry to not invest very deeply in people. But you're learning and you're growing uh, and, you know, in adulthood, that changes because it's sort of like throw you into the deep end, either invest or live a lonely, sad life. <laughs> uh, because you're not near as likely to find people around you who are exactly like you, like you can in college ministry. You're not going to have near as much free time or buddies. Uh, you're going to have your family. And if you're, you know, your investing relationships are only in your family, even though that should be first, that's also a pretty lonely life. There's a lot of songs about that, you know, person laying right next to me. And no matter how much they're there, I'm still lonely. Right? Isn't that song? Okay, sure. I'll go with it. One more and then we're done. Yeah. Yeah, self-annihilation, you know? How much should we actually annihilate ourselves, you know? Uh, that sounds terrible and awful. Um, we are living in a day and age that has the product of science and uh, good mental health practices to, uh, I think, rest on. And I think we should take advantage of that. This idea that a lot of our ancients thought of, of self-denial as this harsh, I don't exist anymore, only God in me. I sing these songs up here that's talking about God, all things, nothing else matters. And I'm like, what, what does that mean? Like I should sit in a vacuum 
you know, with, you know, doing nothing just all day, pondering God's greatness? I don't think so. I think he created people when he created church and he created a lot of other things I could be doing. And again, it reminds me back to that scripture of if you love God, but hate your brother, what are you really doing? You're a liar. So in terms of self-annihilation thing, I think number one, you've got to ask yourself, do I already have a low self-esteem? If I do, you need to be very, really careful with the whole idea of self-annihil and look to the people around you to help you with that. The opposite side of that, like me, is if you have a very high self-esteem. Um, and if you have a very high self-esteem, you know, the, the thing always is still look to the people around you to help you kind of take you down a notch, you know? Uh, and what I think happens more often is that we have low self-esteem with some stuff, high self-esteem with others. It's not like we're just one or the other. But it's allowing the community, but even more importantly, God, to determine how to really see yourself. There's something very powerful in understanding we are dirt and dust before God. But at the same time, God doesn't allude to that too often. He'd much rather understand you know, us understand that we are spiritual beings and fleshly beings, and he's created us perfectly as he, as he wants us to. So it's just a tough one. I mean, it's, that would be a whole conversation um, that I don't think we can do here. But I caution you, <laughs> next sermon series, just on self-annihilation. Um, wow, yeah, the topic itself, that's going be, gonna to be tough. I do say that I'll add one more point on there, and that's that in our day and age, uh, very few of us have a, um, we have more internal battles with this self-denial, but we're not getting much of that message from the culture around us. So there's this irony, this, this sort of um, juxtaposition of, on the one hand, we feel very insecure and insignificant, but then our society tells us, don't ever deny yourself, that's bad. And that just creates quite a bit of tension in our relationship with God. I'm going to say a prayer, and we're going to take communion. For those of you who aren't used to our communion, uh, we just have um, you know, simple uh, a cup of juice and some bread. You dip it in there. And then uh, we tend to be kind of loud around here during our communion. And there's no meaning of irreverence. We just think about this as a celebration feast, a celebration meal, even though it's not a full meal. Uh, and we're celebrating how good uh, our God is, that he would send Jesus to do what he did. Please don't uh, take that um, offensively if you want to sit and think or talk with someone near you. Um, we just do this as a meaningful, uh, uh, kind of a different way of celebrating communion. And sometimes we change that up. Lord God, thank you so much for drawing us close to each other. Uh, I know firsthand, and you know me, I would be living a very lonely existence apart from you. Uh, having very few people uh, that I would interact with, be around, um, that is just not me at my most basic uh, human level. But you have taken me from that, You've taken many of us from that lifestyle and, and invested us deeply into people as you invest into us deeply. What greater joy is that, Lord, when you can connect with someone in the highs and in the lows and understand that they are made in your image. We celebrate you, Jesus, the way that you taught us how to treat people. It's just so obvious and glowing from your life how much you cared about people and really loved them. We love you, Lord, and we take this in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.